This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Joining us today is Dr. Dennis Johnson, professor of practical theology at Westminster Seminary, California, where he's taught since 1982. He's been a solo pastor in two congregations and has served a congregation here in Escondido for many years. He's also a student of the Book of Hebrews, which he taught as a New Testament scholar here for many years, and on which he did his doctoral research. He's co-author of Counsel from the Cross, editor of the volume Heralds of the King, and author of Him We Proclaim and Commentaries on Acts and the Revelation. All these and more are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Dennis, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thank you, Scott. Good to be back. We're looking at the book of Hebrews in season four of Office Hours, as you know, and uh, here we're going to start with chapter one, verse three in a moment, but give us a quick thumbnail introduction to the book of Hebrews. Written, according to Steve Bob, sometime in the mid-60s, 64, perhaps 65, something like that. Is that how you think of it? I do think of it as written in the mid-60s, uh, before the fall of Jerusalem, I think, because of the way the author argues for the incompleteness of the Old Testament sanctuary on the basis of the fact that the sacrifices are repeated continually. It seems to me if Jerusalem had been destroyed, the temple destroyed, he would have built a different kind of argument, which also shows the incompleteness of the Old Testament. But I think he's writing before the fall of Jerusalem, probably in the mid-60s. The temptation to appeal to the collapse of the temple, had it happened, would have been almost overwhelming. The idea that he wouldn't have appealed to it if he had written it after the destruction of Jerusalem is hard to imagine. Some authors have argued that, that it was written after, and he didn't refer to it, and then they appeal to Josephus who wrote after and didn't make any reference to it. But those are different audiences, different texts, different authors, and different intentions, given the nature of the argument of Hebrews. I think it's almost unquestionable that if the temple had been destroyed and its sacrifices had ceased by the time of the writing of Hebrews, the author would have appealed to that because he argues on the basis of Jeremiah 31, the new covenant promise, that that temple was destined to be outmoded out of date, and ultimately to disappear. And that would have been really the demonstration par excellence of the fulfillment of that prophecy, because Jesus' death had made all those sacrifices obsolete. In principle, and then in fact. And then in fact, With the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem. How do you think about the congregation, the the original audience that probably first heard this letter-slash-oration-slash-sermon read to them? I think the ancient tradition that these were Hebrew Christians is is right. The fact that he is expecting them to hear the Old Testament scriptures with great respect, the fact that uh, he does not refer to circumcision, which would be an issue if he were writing to a Gentile Christian audience, and the whole demonstration that what they were well familiar with from the Old Testament was designed to lead to something far better, it seems to me, demonstrates that that tradition that goes way back in the history of the church. These are Hebrew Christians. I think probably in Italy, because of that reference in the 13th chapter, a greetings through the author on behalf of others who are from Italy, sounds like a greeting back to people who are away from their home city. So I think probably Italian, Jewish, Christian believers. Do you think there were any God-fearers perhaps in the congregation or 
Perhaps not. Very possibly so. But again, if they were only God-fearers and not Gentile converts to Judaism, the converts would have submitted to circumcision as well as other things. If they were God-fearers who had not submitted to circumcision, I think probably the author would have mentioned that issue of circumcision, receiving that old covenant covenant sign as part of his whole argument, if they were at least preeminently in his mind. To what are they being tempted? Well, I believe they're being tempted really to return in their hopes, in their practice, in their desire for access and assurance of access to God back to the system of worship that had been established by God, especially in the law of Moses, the sacrifices, the physical, visible temple in Jerusalem, which was still standing, I believe, and and access through the Aaronic priesthood, perhaps at least in part because they themselves were being shunned by the Jewish community that did not accept Jesus as Messiah. In the 13th chapter, he seems to appeal to them to live by faith by going to Jesus outside the camp. So that theme of social rejection, I think, was threatening them and therefore making them insecure about their hope and trust in Jesus as the one and only and the best way, the only way of access to the Father. That theme of social rejection, I think, is really underemphasized sometimes and very important in not just Hebrews, but in other places as well, perhaps Colossians, and in the letters to the churches in Asia Minor in the first three chapters of the Revelation. The question of informal social pressure on early Christian congregations, apostolic era, first century Christian congregations and and after is significant. That question says a great deal to us, too, in our setting about how to navigate the pressure to adopt a socially acceptable religion in a given time and place. Can you comment on that a little bit? Well, let me add one more example and comment on it. I think of 1 Peter Oh, exactly. First, Very first Peter is written to a variety of churches in Asia Minor, a variety of regions where the Christians are facing suffering. When you ask the question, looking carefully at the text, what kind of suffering these churches are experiencing, uh, there's not a lot of detail. But the one detail that we have, it doesn't mention necessarily physical imprisonment, such as Hebrews yeah. mentions. It doesn't mention flogging or martyrdom even. It mentions being slandered. It mentions being thought strange and being called strange and being treated as people who are strange because you're now walking according to a very different pattern of life, the pattern of life that is controlled by the gospel rather than the appetites of this world. Well, that, it seems to me, shows us how very relevant all these passages of the New Testament are to us in the West. We sometimes read suffering in the New Testament And we think of the physical violence or political oppression in a very direct way, as in many places it happened in the Roman Empire. And we think that has application to the church in various parts of the world where there is overt, direct, physical, violent persecution. We forget the ways in which our culture, without getting violent— presses in on us and tries to conform us to the mold and the pressure that, therefore, we need to be conscious of and to resist. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. By 110, there was actual governmental action and violence against Christians. Plenty the Younger writes of his investigation of Christians, and that investigation was probably prompted by local complaints to the authorities about the Christians who were not 
playing along with various cultural customs and rituals. And quite possibly in that case or in other cases, Christians weren't buying meat in order to sacrifice or buying other things to support the given civic religion, which caused then the sellers of those things, and we have some reflection of that in the book of Acts, to be upset with the Christians, and that which ultimately resulted in official governmental persecution of Christianity. So the line between that is very fluid, and we see here maybe the beginnings of that or the things that will lead to those kinds of actions already. It's important, too, because we live in a time when, for example, the portrayal of Christianity on television, who are the acceptable Christians that are presented in mass media? They're almost never orthodox confessional Protestants of any kind. It's hard to think of one except for maybe Seventh Heaven, and I'm not sure what kind of a minister he was. He was at least ostensibly a Protestant minister. But apart from that, they almost don't exist. But you see lots of happy, well-adjusted, and socially acceptable Roman Catholics, for example. So there's a sort of informal social pressure to move in a direction that makes one more broadly acceptable in a culture. Very definitely true. And that would have been true for these people as well. Oh, yes. Well, chapter 1, verse 3, here we go. The second half of verse 3, the theme begins to uh, switch from the prologue and thinking about creation and the Son as the Creator to His office as priest. When it says, having made purification for sins, He sat at the right hand of exalted greatness. How would you... The greatness, often translated the majesty as a reference for God. It's a term that appears in the Greek Old Testament in some of the Psalms to refer to the majesty or the greatness of God. So it's a way of referring to God in terms of his radiant, overwhelming splendor and greatness. The author will use that same expression when he refers to Psalm 110, which we're going to come to very soon, in Hebrews 8, verse 1. Again, Christ took his seat at the right hand of the majesty. Having made purification, what's the frame of reference for that kind of language? Well, that's priestly language, as you said. It, It really has to do with the role of the priest in presenting sacrifice that will cleanse, ultimately, we see in fulfillment in Christ, will cleanse the conscience, not just produce an external ceremonial cleansing, but will cleanse the conscience so that there can be access to God, so that the worshiper can be in the presence of the holy God. And it really does, in that phrase, the author now at this point in the prologue really does bring us to the heart of his message, and that is the high priestly ministry of Jesus in offering up himself as the once-for-all final conscience-cleansing sacrifice that brings us access to the Father. Which that conscience cleansing aspect is very important because for all of those daily ritual sacrifices under Moses and under David and following had a certain efficacy, but not a final efficacy. So describe that for us a little bit. And what's the Old Testament conception of purification? What does that mean? Because that's an idea that might be a little foreign to us now. In our world, everyone thinks that he or she must be acceptable to God because we've been told for 30 or 40 years that we're good and we're getting better. And of course, God accepts us because we're good and getting better. But the writer to the Hebrews isn't looking at the world that way at all. Not at all. That assumption of ours that we're pretty much okay and by and large, God ought to be pleased with us or condone what we've done is so foreign to the Old Testament. That's one of the reasons why people find so much of the Old Testament offensive, because there is 
so much blood, frankly. I mean, you think of the almost whole books in the books of Moses in the first five books of the Old Testament that give very specific regulations for animal sacrifice, not all of which relate directly to atonement for sin, but by and large, this the focus on the sin and the atonement sacrifices, and all of that predicated on the assumption that human beings are covenant violators and therefore have forfeited our lives by having violated our covenant commitment to God, the great King, our Creator, who provided so generously for us in the beginning. So from Adam and Eve on, we've lived under the sentence of death. In God's forbearance, in His plan, He didn't immediately execute death, but that's because He had provided, had planned, and would provide a substitute who would undergo that wrath of God that we brought upon ourselves, that curse of God that falls upon covenant breakers. What does it mean for him to say that Jesus went to the right hand? Why is that significant? The right hand in the ancient world is the throne of greatest honor next to the throne of the supreme ruler, the supreme majesty. So it speaks of the Father's favor, but it also speaks of the unique authority of the Son at the Father's right hand. This wording is derived from Psalm 110, verse 1, which Jesus himself quoted, as we read about in the Gospels, and which is referred to over and over again. I think so often in the New Testament, we may not always think about the fact that its roots are in that statement where the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced historically the doctrine of justification by faith alone until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically rejected. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888-480- 8474 Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. And Jesus in Matthew 21 identifies Himself specifically as that figure. Yahweh says to Adoni, sit at my right hand. And Jesus makes a very interesting argument to the Pharisees who've been coming after Him, asking Him all kinds of questions, trying to trap Him. And He finally turns around and says, well, tell me, if David is Adoni, why does he refer to him as my Lord? In other words, David's not either one of these characters. He's neither Yahweh, whose name they wouldn't have said, or Adoni. By implication, someone else is. That, of course, is Jesus. And then the Pharisees were silenced. From thereafter, Matthew says they didn't ask him any more questions. Precisely, yes. And he's also pointing out that that text doesn't fit with the normal ancient assumption that sons are subordinate to and submissive to their fathers in this sense that, of course, the scribes and the Pharisees embraced the biblical teaching that Messiah would be David's son, 
And you would think that would mean then that the Messiah would be in some sense subordinate to or submissive to David. And yet here David is speaking of one who is Messiah and calling him Lord, superior to David, greater than David at the right hand of God the Father. And so if Jesus is this Adonai, as he himself implied, and as Hebrews clearly teaches, and as the New Testament teaches repeatedly, it cites alludes to, refers to Psalm 110, verses 1 and 4, maybe 20 times. People argue about the exact number, but more than any other passage in the Hebrew Scriptures. And so if that's the case, it means what about Jesus, that he's at the right hand, and what is he doing right now? Well, if you ask that to Hebrews, the author to the Hebrews, the preacher to the Hebrews, I do think it's a sermon, he would say he is ruling unquestionably, because this is a dimension of the fact that as the high priest in the order of Melchizedek, king of Salem, king of righteousness, as we will hear later on in chapter 7, he is the ruler, the supreme ruler. So he's ruling at the Father's right hand. And of course, that's part of the point of our being shown the ascension of Christ, that he's come and taken his seat at the Father's right hand and now exercises rule. But he's also interceding for us. He's praying for us. He ever lives to intercede for us. And the preacher to the Hebrews draws a couple of interesting things from Psalm 110, verse 1. He is at the Father's right hand. That is, he ministers in a heavenly sanctuary, not an earthly copy. And he's going to make that point very directly. If, especially as we think his hearers, his readers were tempted to look for security to a visible temple, he says, no, that one is going to pass away. It's only the copy. The original is in heaven, and that's where the Son is now your high priest, praying, interceding, presenting the evidence of his sacrifice as the basis for your forgiveness. But he also emphasizes that Jesus is seated. And later on in Hebrews, we'll hear him point out that in the earthly sanctuary, the Aaronic priests, those descended from Aaron of the tribe of Levi, were always standing to minister because their work was never done. Their atoning work was never done. Whereas Jesus has taken his seat because he has perfected once for all those who've come to God by faith through him, through his once for all sacrifice on the cross. So he is the king at the right hand of the Father, ruling over all things, sovereign in the terms of Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet, till I make them your footstool. And then Adonai implies in verse 5, I will go out in the day of wrath and shatter chiefs and conquer enemies. So having done all those things, so whatever that means in the terms of Hebrews, it's been done He's conquered. He has, in Psalm 110, received a people. He has drunk from the brook and been renewed in the dew of his youth. And now he's at the right hand and ruling. This is the imagery of power and glory. But he got there through suffering, humiliation, blood, and death. Exactly. Yeah. And that's why I think, among other things, why Hebrews at the end of chapter 2, the prologue just invites us to look at the whole rest of the sermon, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. But the end of chapter 2, when he talks about, or the middle to the end of 2, he talks about the death of Christ, and he really talks about it in kingly military terms, that by the death of Christ, Christ has destroyed, 
him who has the power over death, that is the devil, and set free those who had been held in slavery by their fear of death. That's what the king does. And he's decisively defeated our enemy and he's set us free. And he's done it, as you say, by his cross, by the death that he suffered on the cross. In the apparent weakness of the cross is God's secret strength to set us free. And he hasn't just made it possible. Right. He hasn't just initiated a process into which we enter and to which we contribute. And if we do our part sufficiently, eventually we'll inherit all of these benefits. According to Hebrews, there are benefits being bestowed on those who are the people of the Messiah, sovereignly, graciously, freely, out of his benevolence. Exactly. Because of what he has accomplished. And that gets back to the once for allness. All right, well, the listener has a Bible open before them. They can see a series of indented verses. You are a quotation from Psalm 2. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And then... Uh... By my count, actually, we have seven Old Testament quotations that fill the rest of what we call chapter 1. And it's interesting the way they're grouped. There are two quotations about the son and his distinctive honor and glory as the Son, and then one about the angels, very brief, and then one about the angels and two about the Son, and then finally one more about the Son, concluding with the quotation from Psalm 110 that was already foreshadowed in the prologue. So you have Psalm 2 and Second Samuel 7 about the Son, and then you have a text that the source is actually a little bit disputed, whether it's from a fuller text of Deuteronomy 32, which is reflected in the Greek translation, the Septuagint, and one of the Qumran literature documents, or whether it's from Psalm 97. The wording is almost identical, so it could be drawn from either about the angels. And then about the angels, we have Psalm 104, and then about the sun, the quotes from Psalm 45 and 102, and then finally the quote from Psalm 110. So... I've thought about this book a little bit, you know, and one of the, when you think about it, just the distribution of the quotations emphasize the majesty of the sun, because you have five quotations really directly describing the greatness of the sun and two about the angels. I even did a word count. And if you pull all the quotes about the sun together, they average a little over 23 words per quote. And the angels, the two quotes, average only nine words each. So again, the author is very definitely not only in the content of the text that he's appealing to, but even in the fullness with which he's using those texts, he's emphasizing the greatness of Jesus over against the angels. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Why angels? Is it random or is there something going on in the life of the congregation that causes him to make that point? Well, that's been debated, and there have been some scholars who feel that there is some temptation to admiration or adoration of angels. I really don't think that's the direction that's the right way to go. I think the clue is over in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, when he takes all of these texts that have shown the greatness of the Son and he, over against the angels, and then he applies it to his call to hold fast to the word of salvation spoken through the Son, the Lord— and draws the contrast as well as comparison with the word of the law given to Moses as angels accompanied the Lord as he descended on Mount Sinai. So it really has to do with the superiority of Christ as the mediator of the new covenant, the enactor as well as the proclaimer of the gospel in its fullness in the new covenant fulfillment, contrasting that to the word of the law given through Moses. That, it seems to me, is the main point that he's drawing when he's drawing the contrast between sun and angels. 
there are biblical themes about angels going up and down, as it were. Maybe the imagery is of a sort of a ziggurat at the giving of the law or something like that. And then, just for the sake of discussion, assuming that there were potentially some interest in angels. And one reason I think of that is that in the last, say, 20 years in our culture, there's been an explosion of interest in angels, which may go back in some ways to Billy Graham's book, Angels, 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 and who knows where else. And there is a history of people turning from Christ to other intermediaries, such as saints. So it's at least possible in the first century context that people might have been tempted to turn away from Jesus to creatures that seemed more accessible. Certainly that happened in the medieval context. And there were also Ebionites. The beginning of the Ebionite movement is traceable to Jewish nationalism, which begins to intensify in the days and years leading up to the Roman War on Palestine. Those sorts of considerations might give some weight to the notion that at least some of the people in the congregation, their attention was being turned from Jesus as the, the chief focus to created intermediaries. It's possible. It's possible. It's one of the challenges of Reconstruction, right? It, it is. Because there are ambiguities. As exactly. You see, exactly. You try to interpret a text in its original context without having anybody writing out, well, this is what's going on, and, and this is where we are, and this is what's happening. Right. And of course, the preacher to the Hebrews didn't need to do all that description for the Hebrew Christians because they knew their situation. Yeah. Where, as so often as we're listening to one side of a telephone conversation and trying to reconstruct what's going on on the other end of the line. At Colossians, Paul writes to a particular heresy that seemed to have been threatening the churches of Colossae that may have had an inordinate interest in angels as a component. I just think if we look at Hebrews specifically, where the writer is going is it was really crucially important to pay attention to the law of Moses and the fact that the angels accompanied the Lord as he came down onto Mount Sinai and met with Moses and delivered his law emphasized the greatness of the law. But if that's so, how much more, that argument yeah. that you hear throughout Hebrews, how much more should we hold fast to this word that now in these last days have been spoken to us in the Son, the word of salvation? So I think that's the main thrust of the contrast. This would have been a familiar rabbinical argument from the less. Oh, definitely from the less to the greater. So at the end of chapter 1, the pastor to the Hebrews says, and to which of the angels, so now not David, He's not using Psalm 110 vis-a-vis David, as Peter does in Acts 2, but now vis-a-vis angels, to which of the angels has he said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then the final verse in the chapter, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So those angels, however important they were, they work for us, in a sense, and they work for Jesus who did his work for us. And it's not about glory, our glory in a sense. It's about Christ's glory, not about our climbing, but Christ having gone up, as it were, for us and all the benefits that we get from that. Exactly, exactly. And, of course, that's what the preacher, he's drawing in verse 14 from the quote in Psalm 104. He makes his angels winds or spirits and his servants flames of fire. So he's pulling that language out of the psalm and saying they are ministering spirits. And they're not only ministering to 
Christ the preeminent son, although they are certainly called to do that, let all the angels worship him, but they're sent to serve us. And of course, he's also then building a bridge into what he's going to argue in the second chapter, that to us, the world to come has been subjected. The fulfillment of Psalm 8, Psalm 8 doesn't just look backward to paradise lost, it actually is an anticipation of what's to come, which is our glorification, but we see it first in Jesus, who was made a little while lower than the angels, coming in humiliation as our human brother, and now is exalted and crowned with glory and honor, and takes us with him into glory by his grace. Amazingly, this episode has already sped by, and so I I just want to close with two questions. What does the pastor want us to think about the enemies of the Son, as he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, and what does he want us to think about the kingdom of the Son, as he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1? Who are the enemies? How are we to think of those enemies? When we think about enemies, we think about military, conquest. Sometimes you hear people talking about taking something back for Christ. And of course, we have the medieval pattern of crusades, people actually getting on horses and carrying swords and going back and reconquering the Holy Land. What sort of enemies does Hebrews have in mind that Jesus conquered for us? Well, first of all, we need to think of the enemies of the Messiah, not only in terms of humans that rebel against the Messiah, because as we talked about earlier in this conversation, Hebrews 2 emphasizes that Christ has already decisively defeated, destroyed, defanged the one who had the power over death, that is the devil. And he had that power, obviously, by tempting us into sin and then turning around and accusing us of the very sin that he lured us into. And that whole ground of his accusation has been decimated by the fact that Christ has undergone the curse for us and Christ has fulfilled positively the commands of the covenant for us. And therefore, Satan has been defeated. We can't talk about Revelation now, we're winding up, but, you know, (laughs) defeated but not yet destroyed, right? Yeah. And, of course, we see also Jesus' victory over Satan in his earthly ministry, in his casting out demons and so on. But when we think about human enemies and we think about how Christ conquers them, well, the day is coming when he returns, when human enemies will answer to him and those who have persisted in defiance and have been outside of his grace will face terrible judgment and ultimate torment forever in the lake of fire. Again, the revelation makes that very clear. They, our relation to God has eternal consequences. And that conquering uh, work has already begun, though, hasn't it? In, in the ascension, in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, because the people who were gathered wherever they were, Italy or, or wherever, hearing this letter, these were people who had been conquered by the Spirit and by the Word of him who had died, been raised, was ascended, and poured out his Holy Spirit. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. If we come back from the end of history and we come back to thinking about human beings now, here today, who are by our natural birth as children of Adam, born enemies of God, by at the same token, Christ is conquering his enemies by the grace of the gospel. The Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, persecutor, but captured by grace and transformed into a proclaimer of the gospel that he once sought to erase from the earth. And that really tells us about the kingdom, your other question as well, that the kingdom is advancing now in the strength of the Spirit as he works through the gospel to capture hearts and transform lives. And by that way, to transform families as well and to create churches that are communities that far from perfect, but are colonies of heaven and previews of what the new humanity will someday appear to be. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. 
Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.